Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. A piece of the 21st century pie. People everywhere are clamoring for their own life-sustaining morsel. But water, pesticide, distribution, and financial issues seem to conspire against assuring a hungry world there will be enough to eat. Noel Cockett, Executive Vice President and Provost for Utah State University, has long been researching answers to the question of how to feed 21st century populations. Dr. Cockett brought her expertise to Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Tanner Talks, when she kicked off the current lecture series last month with a look into the future of food production. Her talk was titled Feast or Famine, Feeding a Hungry World in the 21st Century. And she joins me for today's Access Utah. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, so I want to start with uh, with your expertise. Um, we, we've known you in administration for several years now, uh, recently uh, appointed provost and before that dean of the College of Agriculture. What, what's, what's your background? Well, actually, I've had a life of agriculture. I grew up in uh, southeastern Montana. Uh, my father uh, was part of a farming corporation. And then I spent my summers and holidays with my uncle who had a beef cattle ranch. So, so you, you have a background. Yes. In this, including on a family farm. Yes. So we'll, we'll get talking about that as we go along. There are debates uh, as to, you know, what's going to be the future of these big agricultural operations or, and where, what's the place of the family farm. And then I think you're on to, um, you went to University of Montana or Montana State? Montana State. It's also, it's the land grant of Montana. Okay. And I was in the College of Agriculture in the Department of Animal Science. And then on to Oregon State. Right. So there, there's a theme here, land grant. Yes. And you ended up at Utah State University. Yes. So, um, genomic science, genetic science, what, what, what's your background? Well, um, I've always been fascinated by genetics. To me, it combines two things that I, I love, which uh, is mathematics and biology. And uh, so, at the time that I was going through school, uh, we were limited in the types of things we could do with genetics. It was really at a population level where we would look with for trends or differences among animals based on their physical attributes. But uh, when I went into my postdoc uh, at a USDA lab, at that point I started working with a biochemist who uh, worked with DNA. And even at that point, we didn't call it genomics. We called it molecular genetics. And uh, the, the, the term genomics actually came onto uh, the scene about 1990 mm. um, as the study of genes and chromosomes. So uh, let's jump in here. How do you feed a hungry world in the 21st century? And uh, you begin your talk. By the way, I'm, if, uh, I'm referring to this, and uh, if listeners are curious, I'm looking at your PowerPoint presentation. That's what I'm referring to. Um, but uh, I think the first point that you make is that in the West, and especially the United States, uh, food is pretty cheap. Yes. This is a, it, relatively Yes. And, and that, I think, really shapes our perspective about um, our way of life. 
there's a, a calculation that's done uh, for countries and uh, based on how much of their discretionary income goes to food. And for the U.S., we actually have the lowest percentage. Um, I'm thinking it's about 11 percent. Yeah, it's it, if you look at the map and, uh, you know, the white on this map indicates a very low percentage. Right. And then gr- solid green represents a high percentage uh, in the West and the developed countries where it, it's, a, it's a very low percentage. Right. And that then allows us to use the rest of our discretionary income for things like housing, uh, entertainment, um, and I see it as what's driving the U.S. We now have money to ski and to hike and to r- buy books and attend movies and so forth and so on. In in uh, developing countries, uh, that percentage that goes simply to food is as high as 75%. And for those individuals, just securing their food becomes a major part of their life, and they really don't have income to spend on all the things that the U.S. has available to them. Um, the other thing that U.S. is uh, very lucky and very should be very proud of is the quality, the variety, and the safety of our food stores. Mm. So there's a statistic out there that the average grocery store has over 40,000 different products. And so, again, the variety that we have to choose uh, is just really astounding. So it really is two worlds. In, right. in some parts of the world, you're, you're um, struggling just to get the food for the day, right. which you may or may not get. Right, and it's going to be of uh, of a very uh, narrower range of varieties. Right, right, and you also see, um, you know, so much food as an essential of our life, cultural, uh, social, um, you know, just the basics of of life. And again, our developing countries. I mean, it's it is so essential. They pay, spend so much of their just their effort in securing that. Uh, in in France, for instance, uh, while uh, they don't spend, uh, um, they they actually spend a lot of their discretionary income on food. Uh, I think they're the highest uh, dollar amount spent on food per year. But again, for them, it's a very, very cultural thing. Mm. It's something that they enjoy and spend a lot of time on. I think for Americans, uh, I think sometimes we forget um, that uh, food for some people is an insecure uh, situation. For us, it's always available and always around us and maybe we become a little passive about that yeah i, I think it would you know take myself as an example food's always going to be there right it's, right right <laughs> now there are some of the u.s who are very food insecure yes. but if you look around the world and i think you'd, you have you have a statistic here it's it's i don't know 800 million people worldwide who are who are food insecure yes so that's a lot of people yes but yes. but we tend to be a little insulated from that that fact in the U.S. and in the developed world, I think, because it's fairly easy for us to get. Right, 
Right. Uh, you have an interesting uh, statistic here, um, change in daily food intake, and you've, you've got an interesting uh, metric, uh, total uh, uh, per capita daily food intake. And this is in- interesting uh, how that's grown. The U.S. has grown over, you have 1970 up to 2000. The U.S. has grown quite a bit. Um, interesting, China has just really, really grown a lot. I guess that's with economic development. Right. And but, we're really we're really seeing a change in that, um, given the availability of food. And uh, um, it's leading into then the the increase in obesity. Yeah. Uh, but the, the one that's sort of flat is these, uh, you know, lesser developed countries. Right. And uh, per capita intake is just it hasn't grown as much. Right. I guess right. just not as available or not getting to people. Exactly. Yeah. It's both availability, but it's also the distribution. Uh, so uh, this is also very interesting. If you look at the types of food that people are, are, are consuming and uh, you have grains, sugar and meat. Um, and this is as incomes rise. Right. And so as incomes rise, grains stay, you know, there's a little bit of a rise and then it goes down. But sugar and meat, if we have the resources, we tend to really ramp up, I guess, our consumption of sugar sugar and meat. That's exactly what it is. The processed food and also meat consumption, very, very uh, connected to income level. So then we get into obesity. Mm -hmm. And uh, you look at the developed world. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're getting more obese. Absolutely. Over time, including children. Absolutely. Very, very concerning. Uh, so, uh, and you've broken this down um, uh, by, uh, by state. And this is very interesting. I was relieved to, to learn, uh, looking at this map, that we're, we're doing, I guess, relatively okay. Here in, in Utah. In the West, in Utah, yeah. Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. Uh, Colorado, by the way, the least obese in, in the uh, nation, Louisiana the most. And you have uh, pockets in the Midwest and South that are, uh, you know, around 30% obesity, tw- 20% in, in some places in the West. But if you look overall, obesity is increasing, has Absolutely. increased over the, over the years. Absolutely. And this is uh, the body mass measurement. Um, and the definition uh, is the uh, level of obesity. So yes, definitely on an, an increase for the United States. Again, availability of food, uh, the more sugar, meats, refined food, and also, of course, uh, related to the types of, of uh, activities we have today as opposed in the 20s, for instance, when a lot of people were uh, producing their own food and therefore had quite an active work day. Um, And so it's interesting on the range across the United States, some of these uh, states with that really high level of obesity, both in adults, and then followed just a few years lagging behind 
obesity levels in children as well. So as you say, the West seems to have a lower percentage, whether that is sustainable or we're all increasing, we're just lagging behind remains to be seen. I would like to think that there's a much, much stronger awareness about obesity, about the health risks in that, and then people practicing uh, ways to have a healthier lifestyle. Again, watching the types of food, the amounts of food, and then keeping active. So uh, many people around the world, it's not a problem because they don't have the resources, right? Absolutely. Economic, they don't have access. They're just trying to get food. Absolutely. But I think, I guess the lesson is in the developed world's, uh, world, uh, if you have access to it, people tend to go for it unless there's awareness, right. you know, unless you can get the word out. Right, right. And that's really what you're seeing in uh the countries that are moving forward with their economy, with the availability of just access to food, for instance, in China. What uh, a culture that even 10 years ago, um, the obesity was actually limited to a cultural emphasis that being obese indicated that you had riches. And so, um, uh, but now, again, uh, uh, more and more individuals uh, uh, showing that. Uh, and I guess the, the culture can push back against this. I'm looking at the chart you have, rate of obesity. And uh, Japan certainly is a developed country, uh, plenty of access to food, and, and yet it's, uh, they have a, a low rate of obesity. Right, right. Right. I'm guessing that's cultural. Yes. And I again, the types of foods that they prepare, um, I think less processed uh, food, more emphasis on fresh ingredients, um, you know, less dairy products. Um, so um, I was in China recently and uh, was with an agricultural group and uh, fascinating uh, differences in their agricultural production and consumers' uh, emphases. Uh, and so again, this would be an emerging country as far as availability of food. Uh, their number one uh, red meat or meat uh, is their emphasis is on pork. 65% of their meat consumption is pork. Uh, they're starting to build an interest in dairy. Uh, but it's yogurt um, and uh, more butter. They actually, uh, Chinese as a whole, do not like the flavor of cheese. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so you think like, that's going to help them? Or oh, I, I do believe. Yeah. Again, I'm a total supporter of all, you know, agricultural products and commodity groups, you know. The dairy industry, red meat, white meat, you know, vegetables, fruits. But I think, it, you know, all of those are available to us. And I think in moderation, I think they're great. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is interesting that that even your cultural background really uh, determines the types of food and uh, that you 
you consume. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, cheese, I have to be careful with cheese. Cheese is like candy to me. I, you know, I <laughs> Mine's chocolate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, go for the dark, dark chocolate, I guess, right? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I guess the, the key is moderation. And yeah. if food is very plentiful, you know, a lot of people don't think, including me, <laughs> I'm probably yeah. on the obese scale, don't think about moderation. But yeah. I guess moderation, portion size, that's a key, yeah. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. You have a picture here in your your slides of uh, some fat children. They're uh, they're they're eating at McDonald's there, and they're <laughs> although McDonald's is trying to you know yes. trying to go in the right direction. Uh, childhood obesity is definitely increasing in, yes. in the U.S. Yes, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll talk about more of these issues. Uh, get into uh, the financial issues, distribution, pesticide, and water. All are factors in feeding the world. Population is exploding, and it's in the areas where the, we have food insecurity, right? And so that's, it's in the developing world is where the populations are increasing the most. So how do we feed the world? Uh, the, the title of the talk that Noel Cockett gave last month is Feast or Famine, Feeding a Hungry World in the 21st Century. Uh, Noel Cockett is a provost and executive vice president of Utah State University, and uh, she gave this talk as part of the uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences Tanner Talk series. Uh, the Tanner Talks are a cross-disciplinary uh, series of events focusing on the theme this year of food, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And uh, there's some excellent talks coming up. We'll have more on feeding the world following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan, open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Have you got your reservation to see NPR science correspondent Joe Palka? He's appearing at a fundraising dinner for Utah Public Radio November 13th at Herm's Inn in Logan, and more than half the seats are already gone. Don't dawdle, or you'll miss the opportunity to hear from one of NPR's most respected reporters. Reservations are $50, and proceeds benefit UPR, your hometown public radio station. Secure your seat to see NPR's Joe Palka before it's too late. Just go to upr.org. Don't miss your appointment for fun on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe for... Mushroom and greens panini. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. PRI, Public Radio International. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about uh, how do we feed a hungry world in the 21st century? It uh, is a problem. Uh, population is exploding, and uh, most of that population increase is in the developing world. In the first segment of this program, we've established that uh, there are some uh, 800 million people who are food insecure in the world. Uh, most of those people, of course, in the developing world. And we have with us uh, Noel Cockett, who is uh, USU provost 
and uh, she gave a uh, talk in the Tanner Talk series from College of Humanity and Social Sciences last month uh, looking at the future of food production, Feast or Famine, Feeding a Hungry World in the 21st Century. It's the title of the talk. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can uh, join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio and on Facebook as well. So, Noel Cockett, um, it's, maybe we could get into some specifics here. Uh, population is increasing. Projections are pretty staggering. And uh, most of that population increase is and will be in the developing world. So that has ramifications for food. Right. Absolutely. And uh, a term that's been used quite extensively in the past decade is food security, meaning um, how can we provide uh, the food um, and distribute it among the world's population so that everyone has appropriate calories um, to, to live. So, uh, and here's the statistic, 805 million people estimated to be suffering from chronic hunger. That's uh, 2012 to 2014. Good news is it's down 100 million people in the last decade, but still, and the vast majority of those, 791 million, live in developing uh, countries. That, that Those are staggering numbers. Absolutely. I, you know, you can find different uh, factoids about this, but the one that, that has always uh, stuck with me is that um, – a person starves to death somewhere in the world every four seconds. Wow! Dies from, every four seconds. Dies from hunger. Yeah, yeah. We've we've uh, and and again we're we're sort of insulated from that, aren't we? Absolutely. In, in the West. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I just I admire so much people that travel to these countries that are that are seeing this significant uh, uh, food. Um, shortage and that uh, that help in those areas. Um, I have a colleague um, in Extension who traveled to Africa. And uh, while she was there, she said she actually was not, she was just incredibly uncomfortable eating. Um, because they were guests of honor, they were always presented uh, with quite a quite a nice meal, but the local people would actually stand in a ring around them at some distance and watch them eat. And when they finished, uh, they would pass on their plates, and the crowd would then, you know, descend on that food that was left over. Well, that that would have an effect on you, wouldn't it? Absolutely. You'd, you'd want to go back and back, which his colleague probably does. Uh, so, what, wh- where is the? What's the reason these people are not getting their food? You talk about food availability is is a problem in in some countries, and you've talked about this distribution, economics, production. Where I guess maybe all of the above. It is all of the above. Um, uh, there's an organization, FAO, Food and Agricultural Organization, that for years has monitored, you know, the state of food availability across the world. And, uh, you know, they have a few key, uh, key terms that they refer to this, the availability, the distribution, the utilization and then the stability of that stream of food. And, you know, some of the keys uh, for addressing this and, and that, that uh, decrease in the number of people that have chronic 
uh, hunger has been improved by increased food availability and distribution. But at this point, many of those developing countries are still not at the level and may never be at the level of producing their own food and therefore are dependent on countries such as the U.S., Australia, China from producing the food and then sending it for distribution in those developing countries. So some uh, some countries, some peoples will will always be um, dependent on the the worldwide market. Absolutely, and, yeah. I I really think so. You know, again, based on my limited experiences, I, I just I think so many of us here in America don't understand. You know, the situation just we can't even comprehend it. Uh, we had a visitor, an ambassador from Mali came to USU um, and was hoping to be able to set up a, a partnership where some of their students could come to USU. But uh, what they're most interested is people from USU coming to the country to be able to set up uh, programs, educational programs. And I'm pleased to say that we do have many people in the College of Agriculture and in Extension traveling to those countries. But again, to understand their need, the ambassador of Mali uh, was very, very interested in seeing our production system. So um, I was querying him on the types of programs his students would be interested in, and we were standing out at one of our USU farms, and I pointed at the dairy, the cane dairy, and said, well, would they be interested in uh, understanding our dairy system, production system. And he said, well, no, we don't have a dairy uh, dairy production. All of the grain that's produced in my country is, is directly consumed by humans. So then I said, well, would they be interested in learning different kinds of irrigation systems? I was looking at a, a new pivot irrigation system that we had. And he said, well, actually, uh, we water our crops with buckets. Wow. So yeah. again, I, you know, we're just we're it really is worlds. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, um, there is some something of a debate uh, whether grains ought to go directly to people or whether you ought to funnel them through animals. Right. And uh, you know, some would say it's inefficient to to run it through cattle. Well, what, what do you it, think? Um, you know, cattle and and are ruminants, and uh, one of the one of the the evolutionary aspects of ruminants are to be able to take high fibers, uh, low quality feeds such as alfalfa or you know grasses, and then convert those into uh, the you know the nutrients that they need to to grow. Um, so we can actually produce those cattle without providing high quality grains that could be used for human consumption. But again, uh, as one of the earlier slides show, as income increases, uh, meat consumption increases. Mm -hmm. yeah, I guess and um, again, it's this distribution system that we have. 
Um, and uh, so even in developing countries, ruminants such as goats and sheep and cattle are used. And the way they're being used is to convert some of these you know, things that humans cannot eat and cannot process into protein that humans can. Mm. So I, I do believe there's a place for meat animals in our production systems. And it, it looks like, you know, from, from those statistics that if people have access to, to meats, economic access and physical access, they're, they, they want to eat them. And I suppose if that's going to change over in developed countries, it's, it's probably going to happen socially, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Although vegetarianism is growing, it's still a, a very small percentage of the population. Well, and it's also a choice. Again, yes. I, yeah. I just keep coming back to that. Americans and and developed countries have choices. They can make choices yeah. on what they eat. And uh, in, other, in other countries, um, you know, they're looking at production systems that, that are different from ours, and they're doing the very best that they can. Yeah. And in those countries, there is a, a niche for meat animals. If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, feeding the world. Um, the title of the talk that uh, Noel Cockett gave last month, Feast or Famine, Feeding a Hungry World in the 21st Century. And it's a part of the Tanner Talks that's sponsored by USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And uh, there are other uh, talks upcoming. Um, you can find out more about that uh, by just Googling uh, USU and Tanner Talks. Uh, you can join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com or on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, Noel Cockett is uh, USU Provost and formerly Dean of the College of Agriculture. Um, utilization, you say, remains the single greatest challenge. What do you mean by utilization? This is just getting... Getting the food that's available to that's people? Right. That, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Right. So In a form that they can consume. Okay. I mean, when you're shipping across oceans um, and then, you know, distributing that, it arrives in the harbor and then you have to get it to the people that need it um, into the interior of a continent. It really, it really is uh, uh, a massive issue. So we're heading toward, uh, I don't know, you know, some estimates are 10 billion people. Right. Um, I'm guessing that all of these factors are going to have to be improved. Right. And I think uh, uh, the U.S., um, North American agriculture production, has really shown a remarkable uh, improvement in production. Um, You know, there's, again, lots of statistics you can see, but, you know, output – of American agriculture has just climbed since the early uh, 1900s and uh, with very, very little increase in inputs. So really what we've done is just made our agricultural production system so highly efficient that uh, limited inputs, including man hours, is producing ever-increasing amounts. And so, you know, again, that provides uh, the American, uh, average American, with uh, um, a variety of cheap and safe food. But we're also producing, you know, m- much of this food that's being distributed in those developed countries. It's very interesting to go behind those numbers, as you have in your presentation, and, and learn why 
uh, American agriculture is so much more efficient. Uh, so land, availability of land has in fact decreased. Absolutely. You, you, could, you could imagine that uh, you know, cities grow and you'd have less land. Labor inputs have, have decreased, but I think principally because they haven't been needed as much. Exactly. Um, so equipment um, had a steady rise, and then, now that's dropped off as, as a factor. Well, um, equipment as, has in agriculture has become, again, remarkably efficient. Um, you know, um, tractors that literally guide themselves down the rows, um, they're much more powerful, they're much more efficient. A lot of research has gone into both the development of that equipment, but also just the, the seeds and the, the chemicals and the, the pesticides that maintain those crops. And so uh, less equipment is needed, less labor, and less land. The land issue is interesting because much of our uh, population um, desires to live on that um, desirable land. Um, so we're having to convert more of the less agriculturally productive land into the the agriculture production. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that may someday cause our increased efficiency not to, to continue at quite that that slope. Um, I'm particularly concerned about water. Um, you know, water is needed to grow plants, to grow animals, and uh, you know we all need to really watch our efficiency of water use so that we can continue to have it available for agricultural production. That, that's a very important factor. Um, I hadn't realized this until we we did a couple of programs on this uh, you know, in, the, in the recent past. Uh, in many ways, water is food. Food is water. It's mm-hmm. you know that's a very important input. What what do you think? You know, with the, with the changing climate, how is that going to affect American agriculture? Well, I hope we have uh, sufficient knowledge and sufficient time to respond. Um, you know, but climate the the climatic changes, uh, whatever they're caused by, are happening more and more rapidly. And so production systems that uh, have been set up and utilized for maybe 50, 50 years uh, may not be possible as the climatic changes across the U.S. And so, you know, will fruit trees still uh, be possible in Washington? Will grains still be possible in the Midwest? And so forth and so on. And so, again, our hope is that agricultural research, both in the climatic changes, but also the kinds of varieties, the, the production practices, are responding to this um, with enough with sufficient time to actually implement those. Right. The other thing, of course, is uh, as I understand it, um, with our climatic changes, we'll see a shift in, from snow to rain. And uh, again, our Utah agricultural production is based on captured snow melt. Um, so if that shifts to rain, do we have the ability to capture and utilize rain as opposed to snow, snow runoff? Right. Um, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll get into the, um, uh, I think, the uh, crux of, of this, at least according to a lot of people. We'll talk about the fourth factor, chemicals. Mm-hmm. That gets us into GMOs. 
um, which is a hot topic. So we'll talk about that with Noah Cockett following this break. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, the band was formed by four former members of J.D. Crow and the New South, quickly became one of the most talked about bands in the bluegrass biz. I'm Dave Higgs in Wildfire, Robert Hale, Kirk Chapman, Chris Davis, Greg Luck, and Phil Ledbetter will be picking and singing live on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Hi, this is Carrie Bringhurst. Gather with us Wednesday evening. We're going to be welcoming our new station manager to Utah Public Radio. Peg Arnold is going to be welcomed during a meet and greet Wednesday from 5 to 7.30. We're going to be serving you light refreshments and you can visit with Peg and the rest of the UPR staff. We're gathering at Furman's Framing and Fine Art on the corner of 1st South and West Main Street in downtown Logan. And we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have reached our third and final segment in the program. Uh, you're welcome to uh, join us in this conversation. The topic of the uh, talk given by Noel Cockard was feast or famine, feeding a hungry world in the 21st century. Uh, Noel Cockard is provost at Utah State University, and uh, her uh, talk was a part of the uh, Tanner Talk series from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Their theme for this year's series of talks is food, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So um, when we left off our conversation, Noel Cockett, before the break, we were talking about factors that have gone into a market, just an incredible increase in efficiency um, of American agriculture. And uh, land has not really been a factor. In fact, that's dropped off. Labor has become much more efficient, machinery. The other factor is uh, chemicals. Um, this is pesticides, right? And uh, which makes agriculture very, very much uh, more efficient. Um, yes, this is chemicals both um, in uh, um, fertilizers um, and um, chemicals to prevent pests and uh, weeds. Um, so herbicides and pesticides, and uh, really took off in the U.S. agricultural production system in the 70s. And uh, lots of research had gone into that and uh, has been used uh, at fairly constant numbers, but quite a significant jump in the 70s. And again, this is uh, aided in our uh, uh, increased efficiency in production. Where do GMOs fit in here then? How, How much of a factor are they? Well, I you know I doubt that the average person knows this, but almost 100% of the production of soybeans, cotton, and corn in the U.S. is GMOs. Uh, there's two types of GMOs. Um, it's a you can have a gene inserted into the 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 um, the genetic. Um, genetics of a plant to either control pests, so this would be insect 
infections or to make the plant resistant to a herbicide, something that kills weeds. And so between these two types of GMOs, again, almost 100% of the production in the U.S. for corn, cotton, and soybeans are GMOs. Um, Again, this would be a type, I guess you could call it a type of chemical, because, again, this is responsible for the dramatic increase in production that we've had over the last uh, two decades once the appearance of GMOs uh, came into the production system. Now, there's, uh, you know, a sizable portion of the population don't like GMOs, very vocal protests. Mm-hmm. Um, Franken crops is a, is, a, uh, is a phrase that gets the thrown away around. What, what would you say? Well, um, again, as a geneticist, I'm always fascinated by DNA and how it's controlling an organism. So in this case, um, yes, they are genetically modified because uh, a particular gene has been inserted into their genome. Um, for me, th- that happens to be something that's done um, in a laboratory, but nature also causes those kind of changes. And uh, nature is responding to factors that um, are affecting the survivability and the success of a plant species. So, you know, it is possible that if nature uh, was given enough time, these same types of traits would also naturally appear in these plants. The thing about uh, that I see as an advantage, these are a very, very controlled uh, genetic modification, not something that has accumulated over time in nature. And through that, have actually uh, reduced the needs of chemicals uh, to be sprayed on these crops. Um, We've done some small-scale projects at USU on GMO alfalfa, one that um, uh, reduces the need for chemical uh, herbicides on the plant. Um, And so the the um, instructions for these crops are to um, go over the the emerging plant in the first year three times with your herbicide to eliminate all weeds um, in that that uh, crop. In subsequent years, then you can greatly reduce the needs for herbicides, and the crop uh, lasts a lot longer. Uh, An alternative alfalfa crop might need to be reseeded every three years. Uh, This GMO alfalfa can last about five years, and over those five years has significantly reduced the amounts of herbicides that are sprayed on them. So again, it's uh, it's a mechanism, a genetic mechanism, to make our food uh, safer, uh, cheaper, and uh, available to Americans. In in your judgment and your view, um, will it be possible to feed the world without pesticides, herbicides, GMOs? Oh gosh, no, <laughs> no. I I I really. I really don't see how we can feed 10 billion people without um, utilizing this tremendous efficiency uh, that we've seen in agricultural production in the U.S. 
in face of, you know, decreased land, uh, decreased labor um, without utilizing these types of things. I mean, it's just I don't even U.S. consumers could not be fully um, taken care of without those new production systems. And so, again, you know, I, I respect people who have the option of, of selecting organic uh, foods, of it, selecting um, food products that are not GMOs. That is fabulous if you have the income and the availability to make those choices. But, you know, in feeding this world's uh, population – you know, there are populations that don't have that luxury, don't have that freedom and that availability to to select against. This really came home one time in a project that I work on. Uh, it's a it's actually a natural genetic mutation called calopige, and it causes an increased production of of meat, lean meat in the sheep's rear end. Um, it actually causes a 30% increase in lean meat and an 8% decrease in fat. And again, it's just a genetic difference among animals that have it versus animals that don't. You don't have to feed them differently. You don't have to raise them differently. It's a genetic mutation. and uh, But it has an associated factor with uh, decreased tenderness. And so the U.S. Uh, lamb production system has never embraced calipige. They want to produce a lamb a product that is tender. Human or American consumers want that. And so I was lamenting this about calipige one time in a talk, and a graduate student who was actually from Africa came to me and asked if it would be possible to export calipige to, uh, to developing countries. And I said, well, what are you thinking? And he said, well, you know, tenderness is not an issue for meat in developing countries. Mm, interesting. And yeah. it, and that, I think, sums it up very, very well. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. They get what they can take, or take what they can get, right? Exactly. Yeah. We have a couple of questions by email, and I want to get to those before we close. Uh, we have about uh, five or six minutes left in the, uh, the conversation. Um, and uh, the first question is, what are the arguments for and against eating more local in the U.S. and only eating what's grown in your geographical neighborhood? Oh, um, this is a new um, area of emphasis. Um, you know, eat local, know your farmer. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very supportive of that. Um, we're seeing more and more people who enjoy uh, agriculture and want to create, uh, you know, uh, a market for their products. And even here in Cache Valley, we have people uh, producing fruits and vegetables, cheese, meats, um, jams, salsas, uh, tortillas. And, uh, and I just, I think it's terrific if we have the income and the availability to support these people, just as we want to support local uh, businesses on Main Street. And so if, if a person has 
the availability and the income and the opportunity. I hope they support their local farmers. It does have an impact, too, because it reduces the need for the distribution of food uh, products across long distances. Now, instead of shipping those to a large distribution center where then it's shipped back into our area, we can just buy that local. Um, So, again, I hope that people, when they see a farmer's market or see uh, for Utah, we have a label that says Utah's own. That means a product that has been produced in Utah, and I hope people will think about selecting those. So uh, maybe just to follow up with that a little bit and juxtaposing that with the need to feed the world, exploding population, what's the future of the small family farm? Um, again, I, we can we ourselves can help make that possible by buying their products. It's very very difficult though for a small producer to actually get integrated um, into this large agricultural d- distribution that's needed to feed the world's population. And so, I actually think we're going to see a. a, a two different types of productions, that local, uh, smaller farm production system and the very, very large uh, corporate uh, farm uh, production system. What has uh, I've learned, though, over the years is that these large corporations are, in many, many circumstances, actually a farm a family farm based. And so instead of a single farmer, they are actually an extended family that um, is taking on, you know, the oversight of the production, oversight of marketing, oversight of distribution, oversight of the labor and equipment that's needed to do that. So we're still uh, seeing a lot of, of farm family generations uh, still in the business, but they are much more extensive than the single person's farm. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I, I want to close with that that stark figure: um, some, uh, you know, eight hundred million people food insecure around the world. And uh, you know, people may be listeners might be wondering what what can I do? What you know? It's I mean, they're they're uh, worldwide factors, and they're big economic factors that need to be. You know, you have a friend that went there. Yeah. <laughs> what you know? What can a person do? Well, I think uh, be supportive of uh, agricultural research. Um, you know, be appreciative of our U.S. agricultural production system. Understand that, um, you know, for certain countries and for certain populations, you know, there does need to be the use of chemicals and GMOs and and other things that um, – are how we are going to um, feed the world. And again, while they may not be something that we personally want to um, consume, uh, you know, I really believe the research is there that makes these products safe. 
Um, and the the sad thing is that while we have decreased, you know, from 900 million that are um, hungry down to 800 million that are hungry, the predictions of FAO is that we will not be able to provide enough food for everyone. Mm. It's just it is just the situation. There simply is not the production capacity in this world and to get it to to every person that needs it and uh, and so you know I'm struggling a little of how an average citizen can do that um, I think uh, being aware uh, being um, conscious of things like water and uh, you know sustainability of land resources and things like that and then just be supportive of agriculture. We have reached the end of our time. Noelle Cockett, U, uh, USU Provost, has been with us. She gave a lecture as a part of the College of Humanities and Social Science Tanner Talk series. It was called Feast or Famine, Feeding a Hungry World in the 21st Century. That series uh, continues, and the next talks coming up are on November 13th and 14th. Uh, gastronomic Utopias, Mountains of Cheese, Rivers of Wine. That sounds interesting. Then in uh, February, Immigration and Food Security and Global Economy. And uh, in March, uh, Food and Humanity, Forbidden Food. Noel Cockett, thanks so much for being here. Yes, it was a pleasure. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about explorer John Charles Fremont and how his belief in manifest destiny paved the way for Western migration. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey Story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. By the early 1840s, U.S. leaders in favor of Western expansion lobbied for better surveys of the territory and reliable maps. The U.S. government responded by mounting scientific expeditions to gather information about the Far West. One of the expedition leaders was John Charles Fremont, a trained topographer who certainly had expertise for the job. But it was Fremont's devout belief in the idea of manifest destiny that drove him personally to promote American settlement and acquisition of Western lands. In the space of a dozen years, Fremont led five expeditions to the West, three of which took him to Utah. During 1843 and 44, his circuit of the West brought him down the Bear River through Cache Valley to the Great Salt Lake. He wrote glowingly of the valleys, touting them as ideal locations for future settlement. He paddled a leaky rubber boat on the Great Salt Lake and mapped the western edge of the Great Basin on his way to the coast. Fremont's 1845 exploration brought him again to the Salt Lake Valley, this time via the Provo and Jordan Rivers, before heading west on the route later known as the Hastings Cutoff. He was back in 1853 to find a route for the Transcontinental Railroad. Fremont's detailed reports and excellent maps helped pave the way for mass migration. His reports read like adventure stories, thanks to the editing skills of his wife, Jessie. They were also widely distributed thanks to Jessie's father, the powerful senator from Missouri, Thomas Hart Benton, who had his eye on the commercial potential of servicing western-bound migrants. Fremont's accounts of the West caught the imagination of a land-hungry public. They found their way into travel guides and were even noted by the Royal Geographical Society in London. Fremont's scientific achievements in exploring the West cannot be overstated, but it was his efforts to publicize and stir enthusiasm for the country 
that influenced so many Americans to migrate. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.